Good morning, everybody. <laughs> yeah, uh, as Jean said, we, we were working through the Psalms um, as we, you know, kicked off the new year. Um, but, you know, for a while now, we've been in the book of Genesis. And so that's where we find ourselves again this morning. And if you remember, it's been a while. But uh, the last time we were in Genesis, uh, Pastor Steve spoke about the, the death of Abraham. And that's in chapter 25. And today, so naturally, it makes sense that we pick up in uh, chapter 26. Uh, but the thing that you might notice about chapter 26 uh, that's a little different about this chapter is that chronologically, uh, it's out of order. Um, it doesn't match up with what happened in chapter 25, and it doesn't match up with what's going what's gonna to happen in chapter 27. And so uh, what I want us to see um, in our time together today is that it actually is done intentionally uh, by the author. By Moses, as he is penning these words, uh, it's not like Moses made a mistake and decided, oh, snap, I forgot. Uh, we got to talk about Isaac. And so uh, he's, he's decided to slam it in in, in chapter 26. Uh, what Moses is doing is he's trying to convey a very specific message about the life of Isaac. And he's deliberately putting these events together, even if it's out of chronological order, in between the events of chapter 25 and 27, to convey a specific message uh, to the reader. And so the question with that in mind naturally should become, so what is Moses trying to do? What message is he trying to convey? And the unique thing about chapter 26, this chapter, is that it is actually the only chapter where the main focus of the story is on Isaac. And that's bizarre to me, it was when I first found out, because it's Isaac. There are so many stories about Isaac in the Bible. It seems like there should be many chapters devoted to him, but actually in all of the chapters to this point, chapter 26, 1 through 25, there is not one single chapter that is devoted to Isaac. In all of the instances that we see, there are many stories pertaining to Isaac, where Isaac is in the background, if you will, where he is somewhat involved, but this is the only chapter in all of the Bible where Moses decides, look, I'm going to devote the writing to Isaac. There's a story of his birth, the promise of his birth, but even then, he's not the main character. There's a story where the servant of Abraham goes to the well to find a wife for Isaac, but Isaac's not even there. And even in the last chapter, uh, in chapter 25, Abraham passes, and so you would think, okay, Moses is now going to talk about Isaac, but he doesn't. He skips Isaac, and it goes straight into the birth of Jacob and Esau. Isaac's sons. There's no mention of Isaac in all of these stories. Well, there is mention. He's just not the main character, if you will. I'm sorry. But here in chapter 26, the single chapter that is all about Isaac. One chapter to summarize the life of Isaac. And to Moses, and so Moses, sorry, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is pulling together a number of stories to, to present a summary of Isaac's life to the reader. In all of Isaac's life, all the things that he has done, he has decided, here are the things that I want you to know about Isaac. It's Isaac's greatest hits, if you will. One place where we can all gather to learn about Isaac. And so then the question is, okay, so why does Moses choose these events? Of all the things that he could have chosen to highlight, why these specific things? Well, let's see. We're going to run through this chapter scene by scene, verse by verse. And I want you to pick up on something that I think Moses is intentionally trying to get us as the reader to see. 
So if you have your Bibles handy, or your phones, it doesn't matter, um, but if I can ask you to, to kind of keep it handy, because we're going to do a lot of, quite a bit of flipping today. Uh, but we're going to first start in uh, Genesis 26, verse 1. Genesis 26, verse 1. Moses starts the chapter by, by informing the reader that there was a famine in the land. Genesis 26, verse 1. It says, now there was a famine in the land. Again, it's been a while since we started our sermon series in Genesis, but this phrase here is intentionally used by the author, by Moses, to harken back to another famine that occurred in the land. And it tells us in verse 1, because it says, Now there was a famine in the land, besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And it's this exact same phrase that is used in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, where it's referring to another famine, but it's not in the days of Isaac, it's in the days of Abraham. So in Genesis 12, 10, if I can ask you to flip there, there it is, it says, Now there was a famine in the land. The exact same phrase. So from the very beginning of chapter 26, there's a dead giveaway here to what Moses is trying to do. He's going to try to parallel Isaac's life with that of Abraham's life. Where he's going to tell the stories, he's going to frame Isaac's life with the backdrop of Abraham's life looming over it. Moses wants to establish to the reader that, hey, you should pay attention because there's some sort of parallel here that I want you to see. There's some sort of pattern here that I want you to pick up on. And it begins with, there was a famine in the land. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 12, during Abraham's famine, we see that Abraham's response to the famine was to run away to Egypt. And so the question is, why? Why did he do that? Well, Abraham is making his way to the Nile River. During a famine, you want to get yourself next to a river. Because the Nile, the river, provides refuge, it provides sustenance, it provides food, and it provides life. And so he makes his way to Egypt, but it's in Egypt, we read in chapter 12, that we see Abraham's, maybe just one of his greatest failures. You see, on the way to Egypt, Abraham gets scared that the Egyptians are going to find his wife, Sarah, attractive. They're going to find her so attractive that they're going to kill him which is not the most ideal situation for Abraham. And so on the way to Egypt, he, he nudges Sarah, if you will, and he says, hey, I have a solution. Why don't we lie that you are my sister so that the Pharaoh will spare my life? And that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh sees Sarah, finds her attractive, and takes her. It is not Abraham's best moment. The story continues. God has to intervene. And Pharaoh finds out about the lie and he confronts Abraham and asks him, why would you do such a thing? Abraham, the one that God has chosen, is rebuked and taught a lesson on character and integrity and righteousness by the pagan Pharaoh. Like, wow. Fail. And if that's not slimy enough, if that's not weird enough, Abraham does it again. If you can flip over your Bibles to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis 20, specifically verses 1 and 2. It reads, from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she's my sister, and Abimelech, 
king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Again, Abraham lies. Again, he finds himself tangled in the same sin, where he is scared and so lies to get out of his situation. Except this time, he's in Gerar. And this time, he is found out by the king by the name of Abimelech. That's chapter 12 in Egypt, chapter 20 in Gerar. That's the life of Abraham. And now we find ourselves here in chapter 26, and it's Isaac's turn. Verse 1, there is a famine. Verse 2, Isaac is presumably on his way to Egypt because God has to show up and say, don't go to Egypt. There's nothing good for you there. And so Isaac is kind of obedient because he decides to settle down. And verse 6 tells us exactly where he settles down. Take a look at verse 6 with me. It says, so Isaac settled in Gerar. Now, if you are paying attention, you should kind of begin to see what Moses is trying to do here. But just in case you're not paying attention, if you take a look at verse 7, he tells us explicitly, when the men of the place asked him, Isaac, about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place shall kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Ah. So Abraham lies to the king twice about his wife being his sister. And here, the very first thing that we see that Moses chooses to highlight about the life of Isaac is that Isaac lies the same lie. And we have a phrase for this. this is like father, like son. Not just that, but they are both found out and rebuked by and Abimelech. Right? It's uncanny. It should be eerie. And just as an aside, if you are tempted to think, Abimelech? Buddy, come on. What's wrong with you? Right? Like, fool me once. Shame on me. Fool me twice. You know, like, what are you doing? Abimelech, wake up. Right? But historians agree that it's probably not the same Abimelech. Abimelech was a title commonly used for regents and kings at the time. In fact, Abimelech means my father is the king. And so it was probably the grandfather or the father of this Abimelech that had to confront Isaac's father, Abraham. All of this, suspiciously eerie, it's deja vu. Isaac's life seems to be going down a similar pathway, filled with similar situations. There is a famine in the land. Egypt is somewhat involved, and there are similar failures. Abraham calls his wife his sister, once in Egypt and once in Gerar, and Isaac does the very same thing here, in the very same city, and he's rebuked by a man of the very same name, Abimelech. And so the question for us we ought to ask is, why does Moses highlight these specific events? Why this one? He could have chosen so many to detail. Why this specific event? Well, it's to show us that Isaac really is his father's son. That Isaac's life is just another verse to the same song. That the kind of things that we saw in Abraham's life, by and large, are the things that we see in Isaac's life. 
And Moses is, seems to be implying that there is some sort of pattern here. You know, a couple of weeks back, um, I was in our uh, bedroom. I was working. And my wife went up to pick up Maya, our first daughter, from school. And uh, Maya, she has this routine. She comes in and she asks for a snack and she plays on her iPad, you know. And I was in the room. I hear them coming in. I hear her on her iPad and I, I, I close what I'm doing and I make my way out into the living room. And I haven't seen her all day, so I'm so excited to see her, you know. And I want to make an entrance um, as I enter the room. And so I walk into the room and I proclaim, sup, dude, just like that. I say, sup, dude, and she's like, dad. And I was like, what? And she says, don't say that. And I'm like, what do you mean? She's like, that's not nice to call me dude. And I say, Maya, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to be mean. I was just so excited to see you. I was so happy. I couldn't contain it. She's like, Dad, I kid you not, very same day, I'm in the living room working on something. Maya leaves the room. She finds Zoe, and I could just hear her. Sup, dude? <laughs> it's a silly example, silly story of something that we know from experience to be true. That monkey see, monkey do. We tend to pick up and emulate and follow what we have experienced or seen. How many of us in this room have heard of stories like these? Where a friend or a family member comes up to you and confesses to you in privacy, hey, I'm an alcoholic. My dad was an alcoholic. Hey, can you pray for me? I don't ever see my family because I think I'm a workaholic. I'm never home. You know what's weird is that's all I've ever seen growing up. I'm finding myself struggling with anger. You know, my dad was always angry. There is a tendency for us to copy what we see. And so it follows that there is a tendency for us to make the same mistakes to have the same failures. And that is here in the text. But I do think that as Moses is capturing these events, that he is cataloging these things together, stringing them together, hoping that hundreds of years later, thousands of years later, the Israelites, God's people, would read this and understand and listen to what Moses is trying to do. That Moses' heart and intention here in chapter 26 is more than just to remind the reader then and now. Hey, you need to be wary of your parents' sins because you're susceptible to follow in their footsteps. Yes, that reminder is there and it would benefit us to listen and to guard our hearts. But I wonder if Moses is also trying to get the reader to understand then and now to see a fuller understanding of our hearts, of the human condition. To not just focus on father-son, mom-daughter dynamics, but to focus on the tendency of the human heart. That you and I ought to be wary of our very nature 
of our very condition because we are sinners. And as sinners, our inclination when left alone, our general direction when not paying attention is towards sin. That we are prone to drift and wander into sin. I know that's what the author of the song meant when he penned these lyrics. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God of love. This is the very nature of our hearts and thus of the human condition. What do I mean by this? You know, last year there was a a popular miniseries on Netflix called Monster. I didn't watch it. I think it says Monster, colon, the story of Jeffrey Dahmer. And then I just gave it away, but it revolves around the true story of a man named Jeffrey Dahmer, who was a serial killer. And the title of the series is aptly named because, well, Dahmer was a monster. Very, very evil in the way that he targeted and murdered his victims. And it was everywhere. It's all people would talk about for a little bit. Have you seen it? So disgusting. And by chance, my wife and I happened on an article that really disturbed and challenged us. You see, there was a thought in the article about how Jeffrey Dahmer, evil, disgusting, serial killer, how in front of God and his righteousness and his holiness, that you and I are the same as Dahmer. That when it comes to the righteousness and holiness that God calls us to, What's the difference between you and him? We're both sinners. And when we first read the article, Tina and I shared the same guttural reaction. No way. No. There's no way. No way we are that evil, that we are that bad, that we are that twisted, that dark. And to be honest, we were offended, annoyed at the author. Why would you write such a thing? But you see, our hesitancy was rooted in the belief, in the lie, in the misunderstanding of our hearts and our nature. You see, you and I are prone to be deceived. You and I are prone to buy into the lie that by and large, we are good people. Good people that sin from time to time. That by and large, for the most part, we are good people. And we mess up a little bit here and there. We're not evil. And yet, that's what the scriptures teach us. That in our very nature, we are evil. We are sinners through and through. That we sin because that's who we are. Sinners. You see, in Jeremiah 17, 9, it reads this, The heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately sick. Isaiah 53, 6 All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to our own way. And maybe the most damning of all, Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mom, my mother, conceive me. Our hearts are inclined to sin. We wander into it when we are not paying attention. And even when we repent and turn away, We go right back. Why is it 
that Moses intentionally patterns Isaac's life here in chapter 26 as a parallel to Abraham's wife, or life. Sorry. Why does he intentionally highlight the same failures, the same sins, to show the reader then and to show the reader now, to remind us, yes, there is a tendency for you to follow in your father's footsteps, in your parents' footsteps. But more than that, be wary of the nature of your heart. Because it's not just Abraham and Isaac. From the very beginning of time, what mankind has shown to anyone who will take a look is that we are evil, that we sin, that we have a tendency to be distracted, that we have a tendency to wander towards sin. And again, it's been a while since we've been in Genesis, but that's the pattern that we see in the first 26 chapters of Genesis. That up to this point in the lives of all of God's people, not just Abraham, not just Isaac, but over and over and over again, continued failure, continued sin. Adam and Eve eats of the forbidden fruit. Right after that, Cain murders his own brother. The world then, the scriptures tell us, is filled with so much evil, God decides, okay, there needs to be a flood. He wipes everyone out. And yet, again after that, more sin. The world, in their pursuit for their own glory, for vainglory, builds the Tower of Babel. God has to dispel all of them. God chooses a certain individual that he's going to bless the world through, Abraham. And he ends up lying twice about his wife being his sister. Sodom and Gomorrah. Not even ten righteous people in these cities that God would spare them. He has to destroy those cities. And here, Isaac too, he should have known. Two separate instances of his own father, and yet he falls into sin again. And the story of Genesis of God's people, on the one hand, is failure after failure. Story of sin after sin. Story of, we should have known better. We should have been wary of our own hearts. And I will bet that this is the story of every heart in this room as well. That if you just would look at your life, that you would see failure after failure, sin after sin, repentance, turning away, only to find yourself again in the same place as before. It's because we're sinners. And yet, up to this point in Genesis, sin after sin, failure after failure, is also met with a constant reminder of God's promise to his people, of his faithfulness to his people. And it is not so different today. If you take a look in chapter 26, there is another pattern here that Moses wants the reader to take note of in this chapter. In this summary of Isaac's life, the events that are chosen is a st- are story after story after story of sin and failure after failure after failure. But there is also a pattern of God's presence in the life of his people. Take a look at verse 3 with me. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, is God's promise. Not to Abraham. That was given to Abraham too. But in this context, it's to Isaac. 
says, I will be with you and I will bless you. Again in verse 24, the Lord appeared to Isaac. I am the God of Abraham, fear not. Verse 24, sorry, just so that they could see it. Okay. Uh, the Lord appeared. I am the God of Abraham, fear not, for I am with you. And lastly, in verse 28, even on the lips of the Gentiles, pagans, they approach Isaac and they say, we see plainly the Lord has been with you. Sin after sin, failure after failure, met with reminder after reminder of God's promise to Abraham, to Isaac and his people, to us, that he is faithful. It's a reminder of his faithfulness, his presence, his love, and his mercy. It's a reminder that all those things does not depend on the righteousness of his people. It doesn't depend on whether you or I can be faithful or whether you and I can be committed or whether you and I can carry up our end of the deal, but it is solely dependent on his word. Solely dependent, the Lord's promises. It is fulfilled and carried through because of God's own righteousness, his own faithfulness, his own commitment to fulfill his word, his promise, set in motion by him, sustained by him, and stamped by his very own blood with the sending of his very own son, Jesus Christ. It is not a coincidence. It is not an accident that if you guys look in Matthew 1.23, in the story of the virgin birth, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yet another reminder to us that we are his children, that we are his people, and that he is always with us, despite our sin. You know, I love that in each instance that this reminder is proclaimed in chapter 26. If you guys take a look, three times it's proclaimed all three times, it's in a different tense. Did you notice that? In verse 28, it reads, we can see that he has, has been with you. Almost as if it's a reminder to the reader. Don't you remember? I have always been with you. I have always carried you in my hand. The past tense, verse 24, I am with you in the present time. Whatever it is that you're going through, can you hear my voice? Can you see me now? With you right now? In your failure, in your sin, in your suffering, in your pain? I am with you presently. And verse 3 says, I will be with you. Future, do you believe that just as I have always been with you, do you believe that just as I am with you currently in the present time, that I will always be with you, even in your continual and persistent sin, even where you should have known better, you should have seen it coming. That's promised to us is Emmanuel. I am with you. 
Friends, what can separate us from the love of Christ? What can separate us from his presence? You know, Romans, it reads this. It says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness, danger or sword? No, none of these things. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor the things to come. Your sin, your continual sin, your persistence, your wandering into sin, none of it can separate us from the love of Christ. What an opportunity for us today to proclaim of his faithfulness, to proclaim his sovereignty and glory, to worship in awe at the story of salvation from the very beginning of time that God has been working constantly to draw you closer to him, that we can rest assured and peace in his hand as he carries us. Let me pray and close our time together today. God, we just want to thank you for your word. God, we want to thank you that God, we, we, we pray for faith. God, that you would help us to believe that none of this is, is by chance. God, that the things that you had us walk through, that the things that we're walking through now, the places that you will take us, God, that, that we would rest assured that God, we are in your hand. That despite our shortcomings, despite our sin, despite our even our unwillingness to see our sin, it doesn't matter. That you are a faithful God. That you are committed to us. Not because of what we have done, but because of who you are. Because of your word. God, we pray for faith that we would really hold on to that truth this week. We love you so much. We pray all this in your son's wonderful name. Amen.